0: This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. Their systems of law and knowledge long predated that of the modern lawyers who arrived in Australia, and they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures, and the hopes of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait
1: Islander peoples. Welcome to Unraveled, the D.W.L. podcast. Diverse Women in Law is a
2: not-for-profit organisation based in Sydney. Our aim is to empower and support diverse women in all stages of their legal studies and career. We aim to provide meaningful structural enablers and awareness-raising initiatives to overcome barriers faced by diverse women in the legal sector.
3: Hi, I'm Kuthi Ravi, the founder of Diverse Women in Law. It's really exciting to be here and to launch this very special initiative. So I thought I'd start with just a little bit about how we define diverse women. And so we work with anyone who identifies as a woman, as non-binary, as gender diverse, but who also identifies from an underrepresented background. And That could be anything from culturally diverse, from a refugee or migrant background, living with a disability or having faced socioeconomic disadvantage, who has caring responsibilities like myself or identifies as LGBTQI. So we're really looking into the intersectional space. I think it's really important that we raise awareness of the unique challenges and barriers that are faced by diverse women, but also the very unique potential and the immense potential that they bring to the profession and to society more broadly. So this podcast is really special to us because it allows us to increase our reach. It allows us to tap into members and champions and allies based around the world, really, people that are interested and invested and want to play a real part in understanding and taking part in our journey. The second reason is, of course, bringing people along that journey. I think it's really important that this is an inclusive space. We welcome champions and allies of all genders, all sexualities to be part of our movement. It's really important that we work collectively together to break those biases, to create a more equitable and accessible profession and society. So I hope through listening to our stories and the wonderful messages that you do get a bit of a deeper understanding of who we are, how you can play a part and get excited about everything that we have to offer. So over to our wonderful hosts, Caitlin Burke and Fazia Hussein, who are our hosts of our very first episode. Both diverse women who are also working in the profession and studying in the profession, so I'm sure that they'll bring some really unique perspectives. They have a wonderful energy and passion and real belief in DWL's movement, so I'm really excited to hand it over to them and of course our special guest, Amani Hader, to take it away. Well, hello
1: everyone, and thank you so much for joining us on this inaugural episode of the DWL podcast. I'm thrilled to have you with us. My name is Caitlin Burke, and I am joined by my wonderful co-host Fozia Hussain. Hello, Fozia, how are you going? Hi, Caitlin. I'm doing good. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, we are also joined by Amani Haider, who uh, you might have heard Kathy talk about earlier. And I'm going to hand over to Fozia now to run through what will just scratch the surface of this woman and how amazing she is.
2: Amani, lovely to
1: have you. Amani is
2: a lawyer. She's an advocate. She's more than an advocate. She's more than an incredible person. She's an artist. She's an executive board member at Bankstown Women's Health Centre. And the most interesting thing, Amani, is that just reading your bio. You are not only an incredible person, but I'm sure Caitlin and I have a lot of questions to talk to you today with, and um,
0: so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Faizia, and thank you for that really generous introduction.
1: One of the things that struck me certainly when I was reading your book, The Mother Wound, um, as a as a practicing lawyer is you know this is a, a really basic thing but but how is the process moving from i suppose thinking like a lawyer and legal drafting to writing and creative writing was that transfer easy or 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 was it really difficult to unlearn the way you'd been thinking i actually think that a
0: lot of my legal skills and my training came uh, came in really useful when i made the shift into creative writing and I think so much of the time that we spend as lawyers in the office is on documents and putting together facts and figuring out what has happened retrospectively and understanding people's behaviour and understanding the cause and effect of a particular situation. So, I think a lot of that is really transferable when it comes to writing a book. The real tricky things that I encountered in the process were – a bit broader and a bit more theory- theoretical, and mm. that's the challenge of no longer seeing the law as an answer, as an absolute um, perfect mm. fact-finding process, and allowing myself to be a bit more imaginative about what justice can look like for myself and for others. So, whilst the skills were readily transferable, the thinking and the letting go of some of the conditioning that comes with being a young lawyer where you really see your profession as quite comprehensive and you really appreciate all of the rules, um, I learned to challenge some of that a little bit and step outside of the shoes of a legal practitioner into the shoes of a victim of crime or a witness in, in court proceedings, or as a member of the public whose uh, life is being affected
1: by the law or touched by the law in some way. Wow. Yeah. So, it, it, would it be fair to say that through that creative process, you, you almost applied more critical thought to the the systems uh, of the law that you'd previously been kind of operating in as a practitioner, and then you're now thinking of it through an entirely different lens? Did that prompt any other work that you're now doing around, you know, access to justice for women? Absolutely. A lot of the
0: conversations that advocates are having in the domestic violence space are around structural and systemic inequalities and barriers and how we break those down so that the most vulnerable the most marginalized women are able to access appropriate support in their time of crisis mm. and that might not always be the legal system that might not be a traditional path it might be something a little bit different that brings them a sense of safety and a sense of closure mm. and I think one of the things that I found through my own experiences that's quite important and has been quite profound in changing my thinking is that after a legal process is complete, people go on with their lives and they live with the ramifications of the events that were the subject of those proceedings and with the ramifications of the experience of a trial itself. So, we have to be I think a little bit more focus on how we provide that long-term sense of healing, a sense of focus on what people really need in order to recover from their experiences. And again, it's about broadening our concept of justice so that it includes a long-term vision for survivors of violence.
2: Mm. And I think diversity, that's something that is still quite broad today Um when we look at organizations, it's not just about ticking off a diversity quota. It's not just about saying, "Okay, this is the amount of people that we're going to hire, and this should be okay." I think, from your perspective and from your legal experience, and what was kind of the what was the shock that went through your head? Um, did, did you kind of feel a sense of separation? seeing that there was not much diversity in the workplace and how did that impact you from a personal standpoint? So, I went
0: into legal practice as a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed solicitor at the same firm where I had completed my summer clerkship. I'd been a paralegal throughout my final year of university and accepted a role as a solicitor and spent quite a bit of time there and got comfortable with where I was working. Mm. I wasn't surprised at the lack of diversity. I think at that point I wasn't even really thinking very consciously or critically about the meaning of having a diverse workplace and the importance of that and the benefits that it brings. I was more conscious of my own desire to fit in Mm. in that environment and prove myself as a woman from a Lebanese background, as a Muslim woman, Mm. as someone who was sometimes spoken to as though I might not understand what was going on or um, with people assuming that I wasn't um, as qualified or as clever as I thought I was. Mm. So, I really had this eagerness to prove myself and that was really my focus initially. But then I began to observe. Of some of the things that uh, can be considered barriers and limitations in the workplace for women and in particular, women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And that included small things like the behaviors that women are conditioned into from a young age, being soft-spoken, sitting back, trying not to uh, ruffle any feathers. And it also links to things like limited networking opportunities because you might mm. not be willing to participate in Friday night drinks. You might feel left out of that. You might not have the same cultural understandings or uh, – cultural capital in Mm. in the workplace in order to participate in a conversation about the rugby, which the partners love talking about (laughs) and I had no idea about. And I thought, I can't relate to these people. I can't Mm. relate to the everyday conversations and the rapport that people are building. So, whilst I'm excelling at my job, I'm not feeling a connection to my colleagues in the same way that they seem to be feeling a connection to one another.
2: Yeah. And exactly what I was feeling as well. I'm a first-generation student in my family, first-generation lawyer, Muslim woman, and no one before me has, has had a corporate job. So, going into the corporate world, I was like, oh my God, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> what is this? Um, and that feeling of inferiority was there. Like, am I good for this industry or am I good to be in this whole different world that I'm looking at right now and obviously from my own experiences I was too young to understand that I should be embracing my culture and my diversity and being a Muslim woman and not feeling pressured to drink or you know making sure that I can also set boundaries for myself as well. I think the other thing I wanted to talk about, Amani, was you released your book, The Mother Wound, an award-winning book. Um, Caitlin and I have read through it as well, and the amount of points and stories that you discuss are absolutely incredible and powerful. Um, What inspired you to write this book? And I guess just in terms of, you know, a different perspective, did you have any hesitations in, in writing the book as
0: well initially? So, The book is about me losing my mum to domestic violence in 2015 while I was a practicing lawyer working in a city firm in commercial litigation. I had some familiarity with courtrooms. I had uh, represented uh, some of our insurance clients in smaller matters. I knew the rules of evidence really well. I had exposure to that space and didn't think of it as particularly intimidating anymore. I'd sort of – it had become part of my world. When my dad eventually went to trial and there was a two-year wait between the murder and the eventual trial, I saw the legal system from a completely different perspective and that was the perspective of a victim of crime That was the perspective of someone whose family member had been killed in a homicide. It was from the perspective of being called as a witness in proceedings for the Mm. prosecutor and not really having any agency within all that because you're not really a party to the proceedings in those situations. And you're not really able to tell your story as holistically or as perfectly as you think it deserves to be told. So, I felt that those proceedings really opened my eyes to some of the disadvantages that victims of crime experience as they move through this legal process. And also the amount of hope that they put into the system Mm. that it will validate their experiences, that it will hear their pain, that it will really give them a sense of closure. And that, of course, is quite idealistic. And I did have a lot of idealism going into it, and I left that trial with a lot of that really challenged. And in fact, a lot of my idealism was shattered. By that experience, I was cross-examined. I had to face my dad for the first time, confront topics like abuse and violence in an environment that was completely unfamiliar in a case that was being reported on publicly by the media, where reporters were standing out the front, where I had hostile family victims, all of these different compounding factors that made it mm-hmm. terrifying and overwhelming. And when I read my victim impact statement at the end of those proceedings, I felt for the first time, within all that, that I'd done something a little bit empowering, done something a little bit dignified, um, taken a stance, said something, used my own words, talked about my mum, really had a bit of a say within all that. But I was also conscious of all the rules that govern that process and the limitations of it. And when we were done, I remember speaking to my counsellor, I remember speaking to my sisters and. The thoughts that I left the courtroom with were... There's so much left to do and there's so much left to say and there's so much that's still not resolved, that Mm. wasn't resolved throughout that process. So whilst we did receive an outcome that acknowledged the seriousness of the crime that my dad had committed and he was found guilty and he was sentenced, there were all these different residual feelings and legal issues and family issues that we couldn't even touch on in that space. And then there was the fact that I felt that a lot of my mum's story wasn't given space in that environment Mm -hmm. and that can be often for really good reasons like the rules of evidence and at the same time it erases a part of who this person was And they're not able to participate in the proceedings because they're deceased. So how do we then bring a sense of justice and tell their story in a more holistic and nuanced way than what the legal system can capture? Mm. That's what led me to writing. And I found that through creativity and through creative storytelling, I could revive some of those parts of my mum's story that I wasn't able to speak In the courtroom, the parts of my evidence that I wasn't able to give, um, and I mean, I'm not going to give any spoilers away, but the parts of my statement that I wasn't able to speak to are in the book because what you can do with creative writing is quite different to what you can do in the courtroom. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fascinating concept as well that, you know, particularly um, the concept of Western justice and the justice system that we have here in Australia today is, is such a unique um, form of storytelling and it's so limited and it's so bound by rules that um, taking that story and re-empowering yourself with it in another form is is something that, you know, I'd, I'd never considered that that would be a way to, to do that. And I wonder on that, that note about, you know, using creativity as, as a way to express yourself that you can't do, you know, as a lawyer or even as, as a participant in legal proceedings. Have you ever thought about, um, I mean, mean, not only are you a writer, you're also, you're also award winning artist as well as a practicing lawyer. Have you ever thought about, um, or found it hard to nurture that creative side, particularly while you were practicing. I know that there are a lot of lawyers that have um, kind of creative um, babies inside themselves that sometimes get suppressed when they go off into the big bad world. And um, I know that a lot of people like to use creativity as an outlet. Did you find it easy or difficult to straddle both of those worlds?
0: It's very difficult when you're working full-time at a fast-paced, busy law firm to explore other facets of yourself. And it's also very difficult to bring them to your job. You're not really bringing your whole self to Mm -hmm. your role as a solicitor. And you might be very good at that and you might even find it rewarding. I did. I found it stimulating, rewarding. I quite liked a lot of the work that I was doing. But I always felt that I was abandoning a thing that was really important to me in the process. And I tried to incorporate a creative practice into my routine. I would, I talk about it a little bit in the book. I would sort of get supplies from the Eckersleys on York Street, (laughs) talk to my secretary about it and what we were going to (laughs) do. She had just set up a studio in her house as well. So, we were both on this little creative journey on the side. And I would sit down in the evenings if I had time and just draw and paint and see what happened. But in order to pursue anything with seriousness and devotion to your craft, you really need a lot more time than that. And you need space in between as well to find inspiration, to reflect on your ideas, to develop your skills, etc. So, it wasn't until I paused and went on maternity leave and was going through the grief of losing my mom and going through the overwhelm of having a baby and all of these different things that I actually began to find pockets of time where I could explore my creativity with a bit more discipline, a bit more dedication. And that that just involves creative things. And sometimes people ask me, how, how did you do it? How did you squeeze it in? I literally bought one of those trolleys from Kmart, <laughs> filled it with my supplies, rolled it into the corner of the dining room. And whenever I had time, everything was ready to go. Mm. So, I wasn't sitting there saying, one day I'm going to buy a canvas yeah. and yeah. then I'm going to buy some su- supplies and I'm going to set up a studio and then I'm going to make art. I just decided everything's going to be ready. And as soon as I'm free, I'll make art and then I'll pack it away and it'll be ready to go when I want to next. And that just grew and grew and grew because when I started sharing my work, it was speaking to people. It was creating connections. It was beginning to become a part of the conversations that I wanted to have about domestic violence and about my mum's story. Mm. And that's what then led me to entering the Arch World Prize in 2018 and sort of taking taking that risk and letting go of some of the guilt and the pressure that comes with leaving the profession that you went to university for. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. All those years of
2: studying, but it was worth it. Um, I I think – you know one of the questions that i have to myself when writing the mother wound you've got so many things going through your head you know so many things that you could write down and and so many perspectives not only on diversity and um you know uh, you know abusive relationships as well how did you prioritize those thoughts and how did you you know, pu- publish the book into
0: an award-winning bestseller. I don't know if it's a bestseller. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> I no one's used those words yet, but it was, a, it's a huge process. I started as early as The events themselves. Mm. I kept records of what was happening. I'm a diary keeper. I was journaling as part of my therapy and my counselling. I kept every abusive text message or Facebook post that I saw from my dad's relatives. Mm. I kept anything that was relevant to the proceedings. I kept everything handy and I... Didn't predict, but planned that someday this will all be important because I might need to revisit it somehow. And I'm really grateful to myself and the diary that I kept that time because I wrote down what I was thinking about, what I was, what particular chores I was working on on a particular day <laughs> and how counseling was going. I wrote things down like the types of dreams I was having, having when I was experiencing PTSD, the kinds of emotions that the trial was bringing up, everything. And that's really the start of it. And then by the time I sat down to write a book, a lot of the thinking had already happened. A lot of that book is really the thoughts that were cycling through my head day in, day out as we waited for the trial and then the thoughts that I had afterwards. And it was all there. So, when I sat down to write every time I wrote, it felt like It was just spilling out because Mm. I was so keen to document these stories and to share my thoughts and to put them all down so that I could sort of step away and say, okay, there, it's done. It's Mm. there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You write something that that really struck me um, in the book. You said that Oppression wasn't supposed to follow me into my happily ever after. It wasn't meant to follow me into the places that I had worked towards, into heels and suits, barristers, chambers and conferences with articulate white men who hung fancy artworks in their offices. Hadn't I done enough? So when you talk there about having done a lot of that thinking before you sat down to write, did it ever occur to you that you were having to carry more perhaps day-to-day in the legal profession just to get through than some of your colleagues? Yeah, at some point I became aware of that. I think
0: I became aware of it, um, gradually, but, and perhaps I didn't have the language for it immediately, but I talk a little bit in the book about sitting in at this training that I was doing at the time Mm. with people who were involved with the International Criminal Court. And the fact that I found this really interesting because I have a family history of experiences of war and occupation. Mm. I lost my grandmother in 2006 in South Lebanon. She was killed in an Israeli airstrike. I saw in the book that we were studying from during this training, Uh, reference to the types of weapons that were used in that conflict and I remember looking around the room and thinking is this personal for anybody else because it was very personal for me Mm. and I think that was one of the examples of a time where I became aware of how much I was carrying into not just the profession but into my future Mm. and the fact that a lot of migrant parents think that their kids are going to make all of their sacrifices really worthwhile and fix any problems that the family has had previously. And then it's sort of this happily ever after. And I really bought into that. I really believe that you could outrun the past in that way, but you really can't. And a lot of my book is then about- this sense of impending doom that comes from carrying intergenerational trauma that hasn't been dealt with, that hasn't been healed, and that seems to be inescapable. And I'm really interested in how we give ourselves the opportunity as diverse women or women Mm. of colour or people with refugee backgrounds or people with migrant backgrounds to actually say, okay, these things that happened weren't okay. And even though we all went on with our lives, and even though we all survived these events, there's a lot of healing that needs to be done in this family or in this individual before we can properly say that we've moved on. And unfortunately, generations before mine didn't necessarily have access to that knowledge or to services that would support them and provide them with counselling. A lot of migrant women from my mum's generation and just had their were really preoccupied with their everyday needs and their everyday duties and responsibilities and settlement wasn't easy for them but they sort of just worked through it rather than being introspective and mm. having the time to sort of do yoga and get <laughs> counseling and things like that but we have that now so i think we i really see a lot of my writing as addressing that intergenerational trauma and mm. attempting to break some cycles. Mm. And I
2: think just on the topic of intergenerational trauma and things like intergenerational poverty as well, um, those are issues that are going to continue, unfortunately. And even I think just being in a situation of intergenerational poverty, that's still something that I think affects me. And I would imagine that you know, going through trauma and, and going through, you know, something that has just been flying through the family tree. I think that that's the most challenging part about dealing with the situation is that it's on you and you can make the change, but it's emotionally so, so hard and, and so difficult. What was going through your head and, and what kind of change do you want to see in the
0: legal profession Well, the first thing that I can think of when you talk about all that is anyone in the legal profession who is likely to come into contact with a person who has experienced trauma needs to be trauma informed. And it's not easy to be trauma informed. It's not something that you can do in just one day. Mm. It's a way of thinking about people and looking at them as more than what what the facts of this particular scenario are and understanding the way that trauma affects the way people communicate, present themselves, their ability to put together a narrative, their ability to be organised and on time and all of those different things. Um, you know, I had an interaction with one professional um, in the legal system who pulled out the weapon that my dad used without a proper warning or introduction to what he was going to do. And for him, that was him just doing his job. But for myself and my sisters, Mm. that was an extremely triggering encounter that could have been properly um, approached Mm. and done in a completely different way with a lot more sensitivity to how those interactions can really impact the psyche of a person who's experienced trauma. I think that's really the key to creating a legal system that leaves people better than they were when they entered it. Mm. And I know that when I speak to other victim survivors, that's their biggest concern. Um, They repeatedly say that they've been re-traumatized in the course of those proceedings, that they've been re-traumatized by having to confront the offender. And I don't have all the answers for how we fix that and how we also make the system fairer and how Mm. we confront structural challenges and all these different problems, Um, but I do – recognizes a lot of room for improvement and that starts with legal practitioners being better at understanding these situations. A homicide like ours is treated like any other homicide. Mm-hmm. It's not given sort of a special uh status or treatment as a result of it being a DV matter and that means that a lot of the trauma that comes with experiencing DV and intimate partner violence and family violence is kind of ignored. Um, so there is also room for improvement in that regard. There's room for improvement in the way that our courtrooms are set out. We had to repeatedly brush past very hostile members of my dad's family in order mm. to get in and out of the space. They crowded the space and I described that in the book as well mm. um, so that it was a, an experience where we felt really shut out, not just in terms of the proceedings themselves, but in the physical space and in the confines of the courtroom and that up-close confrontation repeatedly day after day when you're already so traumatised and afraid and nervous um, is very unhealthy. And it took a while for me to recover from the effects of those proceedings. And that's as someone with relative privilege, relative um, good access to counselling, someone who had already uh, planned and prepared and had a bit of literacy around what was going to happen. So, for a lot of people, they find the whole experience debilitating and they don't recover from it.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's definitely, a, a, what you've described is, is, it's staggering that we haven't reflected on the structure of, of the system, both both um, systemically, but also physically, as you say, I mean, I hadn't even thought about that um, in terms of the courtroom. If I, if I can just pivot slightly for one of our last questions, I would like to ask you, if you were to speak to uh, a, a diverse woman or someone that identifies as a diverse woman or diverse person today that was contemplating a career in law would you encourage them? Would you tell them to run a mile or would you have any any sage words of advice? I would absolutely encourage them. But I think the number one thing for me
0: is, do you feel authentic doing this thing? And can you bring your whole self to your work? Because it's very tiring to not be able to. And if- you're able to do that or you're able to help contribute to an environment that facilitates that for others, then I think, of course, go ahead and pursue that. I loved being a legal practitioner. I loved being in the law. I had aspirations of being a barrister. I realized um as I embarked on a creative career that that's what I was meant to be doing. But That doesn't mean that we can't have a really great flourishing Mm. legal profession full of women from diverse backgrounds who bring a sense of social justice, who bring a sense of cultural sensitivity, who bring their own diverse experiences with them
1: to work and put that into practice in ways that benefit everyone we interact with. Wow, what a note to end on! That is that has filled me with so much hope. I might actually be uh, excited to go back to my job tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amani. It has been an absolute pleasure. Truly, I'm so grateful for your time, Fozia. You as well. Thank you so much for sharing your stories.
2: Thank you, Amani. Thank you so much. I I think it takes a lot of resilience and and strength, and just seeing you as well. Um, you know, being being a mother at the moment as well. Everything is looking incredibly bright for you Um, and we wish you nothing but the best so thank you so much for being a part of this episode and um, hopefully we can touch base soon thank you
0: so much for having me